Good morning. In today's headlines, Republicans will meet today to try and choose a new House Speaker nominee. Eight lawmakers are still in the running. We have the latest. The Hamas terror group lets two more hostages go. President Biden says he doesn't support any ceasefire until Hamas releases all those kidnapped. The U.S. is reportedly asking Israel to delay its ground invasion to allow for more hostages to be released. How will Israel respond to this request and what factors does it have to weigh? A national security researcher gives us his insight. A third convoy of humanitarian aid enters Gaza, but the United Nations says it's not enough and is demanding fuel be allowed in. Customs and Border Patrol is warning about Hamas and other terrorist organizations possibly entering the U.S. illegally. Freedom of Belief has a watchdog 25 years in the making, a retrospective look at the International Religious Freedom Act, and what comes next. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning from me also. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Tuesday, October 24th. Got some breaking news to get to. Just an hour ago, a freed hostage was holding a news conference in Tel Aviv. An elderly Israeli hostage who was just released by Hamas overnight said she was beaten by militants as she was taken into Gaza on October 7th, but was then treated during her two-week captivity in the Palestinian enclave. The 85-year-old was one of two women freed late on Monday, leaving around 220 hostages still in the hands of Hamas. Seated in a wheelchair outside the Tel Aviv hospital, she told the reporters she had been through hell. She says she was taken into a huge network of tunnels underground and that it looks like a spider web. My mom is saying that she was taken on the back of a motorbike with her body, uh, with her legs on one side and her head on another side, that she was taken through the plowed fields with a man in front on one side and a man behind her, and that while she was being taken, she was hit by uh, sticks by Shabab. Shabab. Yeah, Shabab people. Until they reached the tunnels. The Hamas terror group released two more hostages Monday, this time they're Israeli citizens. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on that and the latest news on the U.S. response to Israel's war with Hamas. The hostages were two elderly women aged 79 and 85. The Hamas terror group released the pair to the Red Cross at Gaza's border with Egypt. President Biden welcomed their release on Monday in a phone call with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Biden reaffirmed his commitment to the ongoing efforts to secure the release of all remaining hostages, including Americans. The president said Monday that he wouldn't back an Israeli ceasefire with Hamas until all hostages kidnapped by Hamas are released. NSC spokesperson John Kirby addressed the hostages held in Gaza on Monday. Here's an idea, and it's just an idea I'll throw out there. They could release them all now. Just take, just let them go now, because these people didn't do anything wrong. They're just innocent civilians being caught up in this conflict. Let them go now. Meanwhile, Iran-backed militias in Iraq reportedly attacked two American bases in Syria recently using drones. Kirby addressed Iran's role in such attacks on U.S. bases in the Middle East, saying there is a connection between those responsible 
and Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Their support for these Iran-backed proxies uh, uh, is no secret. Um, it's pretty open. Uh, and they've tried to make, they've made no secret of it. Uh, funding, resourcing in terms of providing the, the rockets and, and, the, uh, uh, and the munitions that they fire, training for some of these guys. Kirby also discussed humanitarian assistance flow into Gaza, saying the U.S. has been clear on its need, but says the U.S. will support Israel in terms of providing the capabilities for them to continue to prosecute Hamas terrorists. We're not dictating military terms to the Israeli Defense Forces. They have a right and a responsibility to go after these terrorists. Secretary of State Antony Blinken on Sunday repeatedly avoided endorsing calls for a ceasefire in Israel's ongoing war with the Hamas terror group. Speaking on CBS News. Israel has to do everything it can to make sure this doesn't happen again. Um, freezing things in place where they are now would allow Hamas to remain where it is and to repeat what it's done sometime in the future. No country could accept that. Back to hostages, Blinken said Sunday that the Biden administration is currently unaware of the status of Americans who remain unaccounted for. He confirmed that a significant number of 10 unaccounted for Americans are believed to be held hostage in Gaza. Blinken will travel to New York City on Tuesday to participate in a UN Security Council ministerial on the situation in the Middle East. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A top Israeli official is speaking out on the latest release of hostages by Hamas. Mark Regev is a senior advisor to Israel's prime minister. He told Sky News he believes the hostages weren't released for altruistic reasons. These people aren't humanitarians, they are bloodthirsty killers. And if they are releasing people, it's because they're being compelled to do so by the pressure we're placing upon them. And as that pressure increases, I believe you'll get more people out. Regev also called Hamas claims that Israel refused to accept more hostage releases ridiculous and ludicrous. He believes continued pressure on Hamas will lead to the release of more hostages. The latest releases brings the total number freed to four. Regev says Hamas still has around 200 more hostages. Here to give an assessment of the United States' request for a delay to the invasion is Or Issachar, the head of the research department and director of content at the Israel Defense and Security Forum. Or, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Kevin. Good to be with you. Do you expect that Israel is going to respond to this pressure from the U.S. here to delay its invasion? Well, I think both Israel and the United States were extremely clear. We are not going to end this war until all hostages are released, number one. And number two, uh, that Hamas ceases to exist as a relevant organization. I think that we see eye to eye on this. You heard uh, President Biden. You say, you heard John Kirby, spokesperson of the Pentagon, saying there is no daylight between the U.S. and Israel. You heard uh, uh, Secretary Blinken saying exactly the same thing, that Israel not only has the right, but also the obligation to wipe Hamas off the face of the earth. And we saw really, you can see it on the screen right now, the spine chilling footage of these elderly women who have done absolutely nothing wrong and kidnapped by Hamas. And the, you know, there's nothing humanitarian or human in releasing them. On the contrary, I think, well, I'm, I'm very happy to see them home, but we cannot forget that there are 220 other people held hostage in Gaza right now. So I don't think uh, Israel and the U.S. have any disagreement about this. So what's the best way forward in order to have all these hostages released like everyone wants while also having Israel pursue its ambitions with regards to Hamas? 
Yeah, I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. I mean, uh, I think that we should pursue uh, to ground uh, offensive. I think all military experts in Israel uh, agree on that. Uh, so are we. And I think that at the end of the day, Israel was pressured for way too long by the international community to do the wrong thing. It has pulled out from Gaza in 2005, right? let me remind you, uh, and only to be uh, substituted by uh, Hamas, uh, who that was elected by the Palestinian people. And we saw really the terror hub uh, that was made out of the Gaza Strip instead of turning into a Singapore of the Middle East. I don't think that we can allow that to ever happen again. And so, um, you know, the solution to the Middle East crisis seemed, you know, uh, very easy at its reach. Uh, to so many nations around the world, just you know, separate to two uh, separate states, uh, Israel and Palestine. And we saw that that's, this dogma has failed miserably, that if Israel pulls out, you know, it becomes a terror hub. So it must never pull out from Judea and Samaria the same way it did in Gaza, uh, what some people refer to as the West Bank. Um, and it has, I think Israel has already abandoned the notion of pulling out of territory. And I can, we, I can foresee Israeli troops entering Gaza very soon, um, I don't know at what point in time, but it, I don't think it's mutually exclusive to the hostage issue. So about 10 Americans are believed to still be held hostage right now. Meanwhile, the U.S. is supporting Israel militarily with hardware in the Mediterranean Sea. Do you think that Israel will prioritize Americans' request to delay this invasion in order to get the Americans out? Yeah, I, I don't know about these American requests. We got to be careful when it comes to conflicting messages here. And and I know you are covering all sides, but I, I do believe that at the end of the day, um, we heard very strong, you know, unequivocal statements by all senior officials of the United States. There is no daylight between Israel and the United States. We uh, consider ground invasion and ground offensive to be necessary in order to wipe Hamas out. The timing issue, I can't tell you about that. I don't think the U.S. is dictating terms to it, to Israel, and I, I don't think uh, these operational considerations are, are in place. I do think that the ground offensive um, you know, is delayed not because of U.S. requests. It's probably delayed because of the need to train reserve forces over uh, up-to-date up operational plans, um, weather conditions, uh, and the Air Force is doing a hell of a good job in you know, wiping out uh, plenty of Hamas infrastructure in order to make way for uh, ground forces to go in. We have seen two uh, incursions by ground uh, forces to, um, to get out some uh, hostage bodies. Uh, and to collect information, and I can see this uh, trend uh, going forward. And again, there is no prospect of wiping out Hamas except by a ground offensive, and I expect that to happen at some point in time. So, or walk us through this process at how a delay will give Israel the time it needs to prepare better. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the reserve service uh, who, who are, um, are called up uh, are have have to go through through the uh, relevant training. They have to go through these um, you know uh, operational plans, and the operational plans are getting updated as we speak. We see the Hamas infrastructure being you know um, toppled, and uh, as the days goes by, go by, I think the conditions for ground invasion or ground offensive are improving. So at the end of the day, Israel understands that its forces need to go in in order to assure um, that Hamas is wiped out, but also. I think that it, in order to go house to house, door to door, uh, look look for the hostages and clear the air from Hamas uh, officials and, and terrorists. At the end of the day, um, you know, Israel has been preparing this for this for a long time. But in the moment of truth, in the H hour, when the H hour comes, I do believe that they need some more preparation. And 
I think we can bet on Israeli forces to do what needs to be done. It's great hearing your update. Or Sahar, head of the research department and director of content at the Israel Defense and Security Forum. Thank you so much. Israel's military spokesman Daniel Hagari said on Tuesday that the military was ready and determined for the next stage in the war and was awaiting political instruction. He said Israel was learning from U.S. experience in the Middle East, but in his words, our war is on our borders, not thousands of miles from Israel. He added that he was expecting weeks of fighting ahead. Hagari said Egypt was playing a key role in negotiations for the release of hostages from Gaza, which he said was a top priority for Israel. And a third aid convoy entered Gaza yesterday, but the United Nations says fuel was not included. It warns reserves will run out within the next two days. The UN says no fuel means no water desalination and that about 100 trucks are needed daily to meet Gazans' essential needs. The Gaza Strip is home to around 2.3 million people, with over half reportedly now displaced. A U.S. special envoy is negotiating with Israel, Egypt and the U.N. to create a sustained delivery mechanism to get aid into Gaza. Israel has not authorized fuel to enter the Gaza Strip. It says that's because it has no interest in fueling the Hamas military machine. Senior advisor to Israel's Prime Minister Mark Regev said yesterday that that won't change even if all hostages are released. Regev says Hamas stole most of the fuel that went through the Rafah crossing on Sunday and that the reason it's not allowed is because it's used to power rockets that are fired into Israel. The State Department says the possible diversion of fuel by Hamas was being discussed with Israeli authorities. With regards to the humanitarian situation, Israel's president said that Israel is only responsible for 7% of the water in Gaza and that there is fuel for humanitarian needs under the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. And coming up, Representative Chip Roy throws his support behind Congressman Byron Donalds as the race for House Speaker narrows to eight. ESG funds are seeing a sharp decline as more are being closed and less are being launched. We speak to the host of NTD Business to get the details. A super fog in Louisiana is being blamed for a massive pileup. It caused at least seven deaths and dozens of injuries. An Alaska Airlines flight was diverted from its course after an off-duty pilot tried to shut down the engines. Find out more after the break. Welcome back. Republicans tried on Monday to find consensus on a new House Speaker. Eight candidates, including Congressman Byron Donalds, made their pitches to fellow Republicans at a two-and-a-half-hour closed-door forum. They also answered questions about how they would handle the job. My pitch is very simple. Uh, this is going to be a process where it's uh, member-driven, not speaker-driven. Uh, we need to get back to work, secure our border, fund our government responsibly, and hold this administration accountable. Byron's uh, a friend. He's someone that I've worked with closely um, since he's been in Congress. Obviously, I nominated him on the floor of the House in January. 
Uh, we've talked at length about what he would like to try to do to move the conference forward, and so uh, the room I swore behind Byron. I asked which of the candidates would support the prompt full release of the January 6th tapes to the public, and every single one of the candidates said they would do that. I didn't get in this to come in second or, or to lose, but I think it bring, I bring a different kind of background. I'm uh, spending 25 years uh, bringing organizations together. Republicans are due to meet again this morning to begin choosing their nominee behind closed doors. They will use a series of secret ballots. It is not clear whether any Republican can get the votes needed to claim the speakership. Congressman Dan Muser has withdrawn from the race. The congressman says each one of the candidates could be speaker. Six of the eight new candidates for speaker voted to overturn Trump's 2020 loss to Biden. The two remaining candidates, Majority Whip Tom Emmer and Representative Austin Scott, did not vote to block the certification of the election results. The search for a House Speaker continues after the GOP dropped Congressman Jim Jordan. How did Jordan fail to win the speakership? I spoke to Jeffrey Tucker, an Epoch Times senior columnist and the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute, for some insight. Take a look. There's a lot of people who are heavily invested in the system as it currently stands, administrative state hegemony, uh, the censorship, uh, high spending, big government. Thomas Massey said this is really a battle over big government versus uh, a constitutional government. Jim Jordan definitely represents uh, a, a new kind of Republican that's determined to do something dramatic about the problem of debt and government overreach. And there's still an element within the Republican Party, increasingly small, but they're still there, that's determined to uh, preserve the status quo. So that's really what this debate was all about. Are we going to go forward with a dramatic and visionary agenda for freedom, or are we just going to use Congress to rubber stamp everything that the administrative state wants? So that's really what the battle was about. If he were House Speaker, we'd see a lot of dr dramatic changes in, in the spending and you know the role of the Republican uh, control of Congress and so on. And they were just deeply threatened by this. It was fascinating to watch it all unfold because everybody knows that Jim Jordan is hugely competent. He's d demonstrated this countless times, facing down very p powerful government officials without intimidation or fear. Uh, but some people just don't like that. And that, that was the essential battle within the Republican Party. And all of this is in play right now. Uh, the, the people who did not support him are going to pay a price uh, next time around. Um, they want somebody in that speaker's position who's safe and reliable and is just going to go along with the status quo, go along to get along. That is not Jim Jordan. So that the branch of the Republican Party that Jim Jordan represents is on the march. It definitely represents the base of the party. But uh, we still have a problem at the top of the party with people who just want to pretend and don't want to actually do anything dramatic. I think you have to follow the money. Uh, th that's usually the answer in Washington uh, for why things are counterintuitive, why people don't go along because they got you know donations from people who did. They have people whispering in their ear and for, for, and they just lack backbone. It's just, it's true, they just lack the passion and they lack the courage and they don't wanna pay the price and they just wanna play it safe and they're, they're listening to their benefactors rather than their voters, that's the reason. Jeffrey Tucker, senior columnist for the Epic Times and founder and president of the Brownstone Institute, thank you for the analysis today. Uh, my pleasure, thank you. 
For the first time in years, ESG funds are closing faster than they're launching. ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. Are we seeing the end of this type of investing? Here with us live is NTD business host Don Ma. Good morning, Don. Please tell us how significant is it that ESG fund closures are outpacing launches? Well, Evelyn, uh, I think it's pretty significant because ESG investing, you know, we all know this was so popular just a few years ago. But now it seems like uh, ESG investment products have lost their luster. So let me just give you some numbers here. I think they speak for themselves. Uh, according to data firm Morningstar, only three new ESG funds were launched, uh, while 13, so a lot more, uh, were closed this quarter. And let me compare this number to the previous quarter's numbers. There were actually 27 launches. So, you know, it, it was dramatically different just a few months ago. And of course, all this comes on the heels of regulators scrutinizing ESG, uh, coupled with consumers boycotting companies. So we're seeing a shift here. Yeah, hopefully this can bring some of the prices down, like some of those documentaries say that ESG is behind it. And even the Financial Times says that ESG was on a roll. It was growing unchallenged for a decade. But is the sun setting now on ESG investing, Don? Well, I, I think so. I mean, if, if nothing else, at, at least uh, the term ESG is lose, losing its footing because, you know, in addition to ESG fund closures, outpacing launches, the total flow of investments uh, into ES, uh, ESG funds has been zero uh, to slightly in the negative, actually, in the first quarter of 2022. Th that's according to CNN data. Uh, in the U.S., assets under management uh, in ESG funds de declined $24 billion from the second quarter to the end of September. So, you know, you know, Kevin, when something is flawed, uh, it's only a matter of time before people start to realize it and it just falls apart. And one of the biggest problems with ESG, you know, first of all, its scoring system doesn't really work. Uh, ESG scores for companies don't actually tell you anything meaningful about the overall company. It's pretty vague. And ESG funds perform poorly as well financially. Uh, so, you know, some, some would say it was only a matter of time before ESG fades away. Well, it seems like the flaws kind of sorted itself out there. What else do you have for us today, Don? Yeah, so in other news, uh, U.S. car loan defaults have hit an all-time high. Uh, Cox Automotive estimates there will be about 1.5 million vehicles repossessed this year because continued interest rates uh, Interest rate hikes have made car loans more expensive. Some experts consider uh, the record high car loan defaults uh, a troubling sign for the economy's future. And household debt is at a record high as well. The Federal Reserve may raise interest rates again, causing borrowers uh, even more economic worries. Uh, but staying with uh, car-related news, the United Auto Workers have shut down a Stellantis assembly plant uh, near Detroit. Almost 7,000 workers have taken to the picket line. UAW President Sean Fain said Stellantis will have to improve their contract offer. Uh, but Stellantis said it was outraged because they actually made an improved offer last week, but the UAW didn't respond. Uh, now over 40,000 workers are on strike against the big three automakers. The UAW has been on strike since September 15th last month, so it's been a while. But other than those two pieces of news, that's all from me this morning.
Yeah, not very good uh, outlook for the economy that you gave us there. But thank you so much, Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Yeah, thank you. A super fog in Louisiana is being blamed for a massive pileup that caused the deaths of at least seven and injured dozens more. The super fog was caused by fog mixing with smoke from nearby fires. There was a pileup of over 150 cars caught in the crash. Some caught fire. A tanker truck was also involved. Visibility was near zero when the fog was at its worst yesterday. Authorities have asked the public to reach out if they know someone missing on the I-55 area of St. John the Baptist Parish yesterday. An Alaska Airlines flight bound for San Francisco was diverted to Oregon after an incident with an off-duty pilot. Authorities say the off-duty pilot attempted to disable the engines mid-air. He is now charged with 83 counts of attempted murder and endangering an airplane. Here's the story. 44-year-old Joseph David Emerson was sitting in a jump seat in the cockpit of a plane bound for San Francisco Sunday when it was diverted to Portland, Oregon, after he tried to shut the engines down. The Federal Aviation Administration told airlines in a notice seen by Reuters, the man tried unsuccessfully to disable the engines by deploying the fire suppression system. It added that the crew was able to subdue him and remove him from the flight deck. Once the plane landed in Portland, the suspect was taken into custody without incident. An FAA pilot database shows Emerson is listed as a certified pilot who received a medical clearance last month. The FAA told airlines in a separate notice on Monday the incident, quote, is not connected in any way, shape or form to current world events, but said it is, quote, always good practice to maintain vigilance. Stay with us. A Hamas leader's son is speaking out. He says Palestinians and Gaza should be freed from Hamas ruling after experiencing their brutality firsthand. Israel screens unseen footage of the October 7th terrorist attacks for journalists in Tel Aviv. The horrors will not be made public unless families permit it. The CBP is warning about Hamas and other terrorist organizations possibly entering the U.S. illegally. Hear what the warning said when we come back. Good to have you back. One of Hamas leaders' son is speaking out. Musab Hassan Youssef is the son of a Hamas founding member, and he later became one of Israel's top informants. He went undercover with Hamas from 1997 until 2007 on behalf of Israel's Shin Bet security services, and now lives in an undisclosed location. In a recent interview with CNN, he says that he witnessed Hamas's brutality firsthand. He says they tortured so many Palestinian people for suspicion of collaborating with Israel, and that's when he started questioning the Hamas movement. He says Hamas is the enemy of not just Israel, but the Palestinian people. He expresses his support for Israel to eliminate the terrorist group. Here's a portion of the interview. It's a war time, unfortunately, and this war, uh, Israel did not start. Hamas started this war, and Hamas, in fact, uh, in this equation, uh, blood for money, they start a war every uh, few years. Whenever they want money, uh, you know, they uh, shed uh, children's blood. Uh, this is their game. 
and this has to stop. This to ha have to come to an end. And unfortunately, the price is not going to be cheap. Uh, in fact, I feel very sorry for Israel that they have to go into Gaza, where there are booby traps all over the place and tunnels all over the place. I don't know how many Israeli soldiers have to die in order to uh, uh, destroy uh, Hamas. This is the most complicated mission a modern army uh, uh, has in our, uh, in our modern day. But Hamas is a religious movement that does not believe in political borders. You know, they want to establish an Islamic state, state on the rubble of the state of Israel. They want to annihilate the Jewish people and the Jewish state. They want to kill everybody who support Israel, then establish an Islamic state. But this is not the end, because their uh, ambition is global. They want to establish eventually an Islamic state, a global state. So this is what's on their mind. And we know that we cannot satisfy their ambition. And the more power, you know, we give them, the more aggressive they are going to be. Uh, hence, we cannot give Hamas what they want. We cannot give them what they are asking for. We need to free Palestinians and free Gaza from Hamas ruling. The Israeli government screened a compilation of gruesome footage of the October 7th terrorist attacks. The 45-minute compilation shown to a pool of journalists comprised of cell phone, security, dash cam, and Hamas terrorist body cam videos. The videos captured horrific terrorist acts, including a father being killed by a grenade in front of his two sons, according to media reports. A phone conversation of a terrorist bragging about how many people he had killed was also revealed. Out of respect for the families, Israel says the footage will not be released to the public. That is unless the family gives permission after watching it themselves. A government spokesman said the reason for the screening is a Holocaust denial-like phenomenon currently taking place. The San Diego Office of the Customs and Border Patrol issued a warning saying Hamas terrorists may try to enter the U.S. It says individuals inspired by the current Israel-Hamas conflict might attempt to travel to or from the Middle East across the southwest border. The unclassified document included information on terrorist group symbols law enforcement can look for. It also advises officials to look carefully into a person's associations with military or security groups. The document suggests asking about any familial ties to terror groups. The concerns come as Israel-Hamas tensions grow. There have been an estimated 6 million illegal entries across the southern border since 2021. The House Oversight Committee is demanding answers from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Republicans on the panel say they've seen reports of Russia and Hamas using American weapons. Chairman James Comer said there are reports of weapons being redistributed and resold to terrorist groups. There is speculation the weapons may come from those left after the U.S. withdrawal in Afghanistan. Another possibility being floated is that the weapons came from arms sent to Ukraine, but were stolen and diverted to the Middle East by gun smuggling groups. Comer says he expects the Defense Department would be able to answer all his questions. Still to come, disagreement between China and the Philippines after two of their ships collide in the South China Sea. We speak to an expert about the incident's significance. The International Religious Freedom Act turns 25. Hear what lawmakers and commissioners say about its relevance today.
to have you back. The Philippines has summoned China's ambassador over a boat collision in its waters. A Philippine boat was en route to deliver supplies to troops on Sunday when a Chinese Coast Guard ship blocked its path, causing a collision. In the same incident, a Chinese militia vessel also bumped into a Philippine Coast Guard ship that was escorting the chartered boat. The Philippines condemned the maneuvers as provocative, irresponsible, and illegal. It emphasized its rights to conduct activities in its waters. China's Coast Guard blamed the Philippine vessels for disregarding radio warnings and causing the collisions. The State Department said the U.S. stands with the Philippines. It called Beijing's actions in the South China Sea dangerous and unlawful. And to dig deeper into those recent events and the tensions in the South China Sea, we're bringing in retired Colonel Grant Newsham. He's also a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy. It's so good to have you, as always, Grant. Now, first, um, how significant were the recent collisions between the Chinese and Philippine ships there in context of the existing tensions? Well, it's a tightening up of things by the, the Chinese. They're showing they're willing to use more and more force and eventually they have the capacity easily to overwhelm the Filipinos so they can't get to Second Thomas Shoal for the resupply. Effectively, this is calling America's bluff. And without American help, the Filipinos are in a lot of trouble. The Filipinos are expecting America to help. America says it will, says it will. But the, the Chinese, as I said, are gradually ratcheting it up. And this is really the last step or the, another step in the Chinese takeover of the South China Sea that started about 2012. And they have gradually gotten de facto control of the these waters, which are about one times and a half the size of the Mediterranean. Hmm. And so let's talk, I want to touch on the um, America's bluff a little bit later, but first zooming out for some context, what is the strategic significance of the South China Sea to the China and the U.S.? Well, there's a huge amount of commercial transport that flows through the South China Sea. Much of Japan's oil and food comes through there. South Korea, the same thing. A lot of global trade goes through there. I say it's a huge amount. So from an economic standpoint, this is a super highway and then some. But from a military perspective, as China comes to dominate the South China Sea, potentially control all of it, that they can then operate more freely militarily. It gives them a good platform for operating against Japan, Australia, and farther east into the Pacific Ocean. Hmm. Now, um, about the American bluff, so to speak, the U.S., for example, they they have renewed its warning since, and um, also that there is a mutual defense treaty. So how should we understand, um, or could you go into a bit more detail, how um, how the U.S. is bluffing, and if, if it really comes down to it, um, do you think, how, how would the U.S. Ha- uh, handle that situation? Well, the Americans have said that they will defend the Filipinos, uh, on this matter on uh, Second Thomas Shoal and potentially all Philippine uh, ships in the in Philippine waters in the South China Sea, etc. That is what is the treaty is for. It calls for America to defend uh, assaults on, particularly attacks on Chinese uh, territory. And it also, inc- Americans have interpreted this to include so Chinese ships and vessels. So that it, the, that's what the, the meaning of the, the treaty is. The Filipinos are expecting it. They were expecting it in 2012 as well, when the Chinese moved in on Second Thomas Shoal and the Obama administration uh, basically let them, did not back up the Filipinos. This time, 
the Americans are going to have to get involved with their own ships, aircraft, etc., uh, to support their ally or to be a huge loss of credibility. Mm. And then, well, I guess this would come on top of that, that many are now saying that the war in Israel and Ukraine might embolden China. What have you been seeing on that end? I think China likes what it sees. Uh, America is getting increasingly uh, drawn in to this fight, uh, Israel, Gaza against Hamas. And if it involves Iran, then America is going to be even more distracted. It requires a lot of hardware, people, attention and political uh, effort to go into the Middle East, what you've on top of already uh, uh, operations in in Ukraine. So the, everything you do in the Middle East in Europe is something that it's harder to do in the Asia Pacific. So as China throws its weight around, America has less resources to direct uh, to the Western Pacific, to defense of Taiwan and its other allies out there, including the Philippines. Uh, America can do it, but it just doesn't have as much to do it with. America is increasingly overstretched. China knows this, and it also sees really the chaos in the U.S. political system. Our uh, financial uh, house isn't in very good order either. So China, I think, may like what it sees, and there may be voices in Beijing saying, if not now, when? Uh, so this is a very serious uh, time we're in. Well, um, thank you so much, uh, Grant Newsham. I really appreciate your insight and analysis, as always. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. And religious freedom is a topic getting a lot of attention in light of recent events. The universal right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion or belief was the basis for the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998. The law is as relevant today as it was then. Commissioners and lawmakers met yesterday to mark the 25th anniversary of the bill's passage and suggest the next steps moving forward. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the commemoration. It's been 25 years since the U.S. passed the International Religious Freedom Act into law. It put an ambassador at large for international religious freedom in place and established a bipartisan commission called USERF to monitor the worst violations and report annually on the consequences. We were among the first to call for recognizing China's horrific persecution of Uyghurs as a genocide. We continue to call out Russia for its anti-Semitic rhetoric and Holocaust distortion in an effort to justify Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. And last week, we condemned the brutal terrorist onslaught by Hamas, whose anti-Semitic charter justifies violence and worse against innocent Israelis. And we iterated that invoking any religion to justify taking innocent lives has no place in any society. The 1998 law made religious freedom or belief a higher priority when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, gave influence over the U.S.'s refugee and asylum policies, and strengthened advocacy for those being persecuted for their beliefs. USERF Vice Chair Frederick Davey says he and his fellow commissioners are interested in organizing and participating in a national prayer service in response to the crisis in the Middle East a national prayer service uh, that uh, called for um, an acknowledgement of the brutality and the horror and the depravity that has taken place in the region, uh, calling for compassion for human life and innocent lives in the region. Former U.S. Representative and USERF Commissioner Frank Wolf, the bill's author, shared some advice to those taking the torch. I think you have to keep it bipartisan. 
He says the faith community in the U.S. needs to get more engaged and that young people on college campuses need to be educated and motivated. I don't believe we can have people lobbying law firms in town, lobbying for China when they're committing genocide against Uyghur Muslims and taking organs out from the Falun Gong and taking down crosses from Catholic churches and arresting Protestant house church leaders and, and doing that. So I think one recommendation that Congress should take is ban lobbying for China and then ban lobbying for any country that is a CPC-designated country for four years straight. Congressman Gus Bilirakis thanked the commission for standing up on the issue and for creating tools to hold violators accountable for their actions. USURF says its efforts have resulted in sanctions, the release of prisoners, and changes in other countries' laws and policies, as well as broad issues of international religious freedom or media and public attention. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. You can find the full broadcast of the event on ntd.com if you want to hear what else was said. Yes, it's very interesting how they mentioned the Falun Gong in China, a spiritual group. Mm -hmm. And it's so important to have religious freedom and for us Americans to be aware of what's happening around the world. And it's, it's on a personal level, you know, people having a sense of hope through the spiritual practices, but also on a societal level. Like even in China in the 90s, the local newspapers were reporting that so many people were practicing Falun Gong and believing in these moral teachings that actually crime rates were coming down and everything. And now the CCP brutally persecutes the group. Right. and. Well, I think, yeah, because we have um, all this freedom in the U.S., right? It often is not necessarily on our, on our radar, but it's a really big issue in many different countries around the world. So, yeah, it was a good, um, good thing to keep an eye on that. Um, but we're heading to break at this moment. Coming up, they came to dance at a festival of peace, but soon found themselves under attack by violent terrorists. Entity spoke with two survivors of the Supernova Festival massacre in Israel. Good to have you back. A music festival in the Negev Desert in southern Israel, described as celebrating unity and love, was the site of some of the worst violence of the Hamas terror attacks. And Titi's Daniel Monahan spoke with two of the lucky ones, survivors who made it out. Ila Fakliro got to the Nova Festival around midnight to bartend. At 6.20 in the morning, the sky seemed to fill up with fireworks. Uh, and then I understand it's not fireworks, it's missiles and rockets. And then things start to get a little complicated. Ila jumped in her car and tried to escape, but soon ran into a traffic jam with an ambulance in the road and a wounded policeman. When I look in the ambulance, I see a girl around my age start to scream, I don't feel my leg, I don't feel my leg. And then I saw the police officers. It was a lot of bullets, a lot of bullets all in his stomach, bleeding all over his mouth. A police officer screamed at Ila to run towards a nearby city, but it wasn't long before about 20 terrorists showed up. They start shooting all over the place. They didn't care. How old are you? What is your gender? It just looked like a duck range. Like if you are alive, you're not going to be alive anymore. I saw a couple of people start falling down, and then. I understand it's now or never, I need to run and never look back, so that's what I did. At that point, the first videos with the kidnappings began to arrive. Two of Ila's friends were among those taken hostage, Noah Argamani and Abinatan Or. We walked for five hours, 20 kilometers, without, like with the poor service, without the police officers, without any military. 
Um, we're hearing shooting all over the place. Um, missiles start to explode behind us, so we see like a huge black clown. Eli says the terrorism Hamas commits has nothing to do with fighting for freedom. Killing innocent people, kidnapping kids, babies, elderly women, people that have been in the Holocaust. Raping women is not in the name of peace. This is not what brings you free Palestine. The pro-Hamas rallies around the world have horrified her. When Al-Qaeda did the 9-11, nobody stood by them. When ISIS did all the things that ISIS did, nobody stood by them. But if it's Hamas and Israel, everybody cheering and standing behind Hamas, I don't understand why how it's happening, because we are Jewish, because we are Israeli. When Tal Neushtai saw the sky full of missiles, he knew straight away that a serious attack was underway. Told to evacuate by police, he and his friends knew they had to be quick with 3,000 people there. We drove as fast as we can. We took a left turn on the highway towards North Israel, heading to Tel Aviv. But they soon saw cars driving back in the opposite direction, the road blocked by terrorists shooting at people. They went to the nearest village, Kibbutz Beri, to hide in one of the houses. The gate was closed. Luckily, that was our first miracle. After that, we realized that uh, Kibbutz Beri has been completely taken over by terrorists. All the houses, all the people that are living in the kibbutz, young kids, babies, old people, women, families, everybody got or slaughtered or raped or kidnapped. No one stayed alive. He and his friends found some concrete cubes to hide from the missiles in. They soon spotted terrorists through a small hole in the concrete. Saw two trucks, Toyota trucks with six terrorists in the back on each one, each one to AK-47 in his hands, shooting all over the place, shooting on the cars, shooting on the village, shooting in the air, just shooting without without even thinking twice. They waited for a while until after the terrorists had passed and took off in the car again. They later learned that other people tried to hide in those same concrete cubes. And terrorists came and slaughtered them completely with everyone that was inside. And so we were very lucky. In the car again, they soon ran into another roadblock. They stopped wondering if they were Israelis. After 10 seconds, we see guns pointing at us. I was driving, I started doing reverse, and then first shot in my friend's door, second shot in the uh, windshield, reaching all the way back to the rear, rear shield, broke it completely. Luckily, no, none of us got injured. They drove as fast as they could, turned off a dirt road, and found an orchard there where they hid under an orange tree for hours, not moving or speaking. We heard terrorists damaging the car, honking, closing the door, breaking the windows. They stole all our stuff. We hear them talking Arabic, and it starts to get closer and closer and closer to us. Luckily for Tal and his friends, the terrorists passed by them. Israeli soldiers eventually found them, gave them water, and took them to a safe house in the closest village. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Things that your worst nightmare would be made of. You know, Evelyn, those survivors are really doing a great thing by recounting their harrowing experience so the world's people can know what happened. Right, and you know there are some heroic stories coming out of that as well with um, one survivor that told about um, a person coming from nearby 
towns driving toward the festival or where all these horrific things were happening to save these people, to get them into safety, and then driving, dropping them off and driving right back to get more. Some so, of the best yeah. parts of humanity. Mm. All right, um, right here we are going to start the second part of our broadcast. Iran-backed militias reportedly attacked two American bases in Syria. Meanwhile, two more hostages released in Israel. We have the latest on the U.S. response to the war. How much of the aid to Gaza is stolen by the Hamas terrorist group? And what's the refugee situation across the region? An analyst brings us an update. And then there were eight. One lawmaker drops out of the running for House Speaker. Republicans are set to meet today to try and select a candidate from those remaining. Sports betting is taking its toll on society as many become addicted. Meanwhile, states are raking in hundreds of millions taxing it. Are they doing enough to help those that seek it? A reporter brings us an update. Art-loving New Yorkers gathered at Lincoln Center to witness Shen Yun Symphony Orchestra's first show of the year. Hear what the audience members had to say. Good morning again, and to all those now joining us, welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. I'm Evelyn Lee. Good morning also from me. Uh, today is Tuesday, October 24th. Now let's get right into our top stories. The Hamas terror group released two more hostages Monday. This time, they're Israeli citizens. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on that and the latest news on the U.S. response to Israel's war with Hamas. The hostages were two elderly women aged 79 and 85. The Hamas terror group released the pair to the Red Cross at Gaza's border with Egypt. President Biden welcomed their release on Monday in a phone call with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Biden reaffirmed his commitment to the ongoing efforts to secure the release of all remaining hostages, including Americans. The president said Monday that he wouldn't back an Israeli ceasefire with Hamas until all hostages kidnapped by Hamas are released. NSC spokesperson John Kirby addressed the hostages held in Gaza on Monday. Here's an idea, and it's just an idea I'll throw out there. They could release them all now. Just take, just let them go now, because these people didn't do anything wrong. They're just innocent civilians being caught up in this conflict. Let them go now. Meanwhile, Iran-backed militias in Iraq reportedly attacked two American bases in Syria recently using drones. Kirby addressed Iran's role in such attacks on U.S. bases in the Middle East, saying there is a connection between those responsible and Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Their support for these Iran-backed proxies uh, uh, is no secret. Um, it's pretty open. Uh, and they've tried to make, they've made no secret of it, uh, funding resourcing in terms of providing the, the rockets and, and the uh, uh, and the munitions that they fire, training for some of these guys. Kirby also discussed humanitarian assistance flow into Gaza, saying the U.S. has been clear on its need, but says the U.S. will support Israel in terms of providing the capabilities for them to continue to prosecute Hamas terrorists. We're not dictating military terms to the Israeli Defense Forces. They have a right and a responsibility to go after these terrorists. 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken on Sunday repeatedly avoided endorsing calls for a ceasefire in Israel's ongoing war with the Hamas terror group. Speaking on CBS News. Israel has to do everything it can to make sure this doesn't happen again. Um, freezing things in place where they are now would allow Hamas to remain where it is and to repeat what it's done sometime in the future. No country could accept that. Back to hostages, Blinken said Sunday that the Biden administration is currently unaware of the status of Americans who remain unaccounted for. He confirmed that a significant number of 10 unaccounted for Americans are believed to be held hostage in Gaza. Blinken will travel to New York City on Tuesday to participate in a UN Security Council ministerial on the situation in the Middle East. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A third aid convoy entered Gaza yesterday, but the United Nations says fuel was not included. It warns reserves will run out within the next two days. The UN says no fuel means no water desalination and that about 100 trucks are needed daily to meet Gazans' essential needs. The Gaza Strip is home to around 2.3 million people, with over half reportedly now displaced. A U.S. special envoy is negotiating with Israel, Egypt and the U.N. to create a sustained delivery mechanism to get aid into Gaza. Israel has not authorized fuel to enter the Gaza Strip. It says that's because it has no interest in fueling the Hamas military machine. Senior advisor to Israel's Prime Minister Mark Regev says yesterday that won't change even if all hostages are released. Regev says Hamas stole most of the fuel that went through Rafah crossing on Sunday and that the reason is not allowed is because those use to power rockets that are fired into Israel. The State Department says the possible diversion of fuel by Hamas was being discussed with Israeli authorities. With regards to the humanitarian situation, Israel's president said that Israel is only responsible for 7% of the water in Gaza and that there is fuel for humanitarian needs under the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Joining us now for a closer look at where the Gaza aid actually ends up and the regional situation more broadly is Adam Savitt, the director of the China Policy Initiative at America First Policy Institute. Adam, it is great to have you with us this morning. How much of the aid sent to Gaza actually reaches civilians and how much is stolen by Hamas? You know, we can't even use the word stolen by Hamas. They simply control everything that comes in and out and the way it's distributed. In a sense, it's all going to be stolen by Hamas. They're going to be able to allocate it to their needs. And unfortunately, in the past, this has been the problem with getting anything to the average Palestinian person. For example, tons and tons of concrete uh, in the past years have been sent to uh, Gaza Strip. And unfortunately, instead of building uh, businesses and homes and productive things, they use that concrete to build tons, uh, rather miles and miles of underground tunnels. They use those tunnels uh, to ferry rockets and fighters. They call it the Gaza Metro. That's how extensive it is. Uh, another example is that the international community, the US, the EU, the UN, uh, has sent uh, piping and other uh, means to build uh, for Gaza to build its own water system. And Hamas appropriated that piping. They were very proud of it. They made a video of it. They appropriated it to build uh, missile tubes. So this is an example of how uh, these uh, supplies are appropriated. It's nearly impossible to get it to the average citizen on the ground. Adam, all of it, that is just a striking revelation here. The, the IDF has even said that a recent shipment here has been stolen and that's enough fuel to power the water desalination plant 
the facilities in Gaza for six days. I want to talk about the refugee situation briefly here. Egypt and Jordan have refused to allow Palestinian refugees into their countries, and some experts say that's due to the high cost. They don't want to be seen as being complicit in the displacement of Palestinians and the fear that Hamas terrorists might enter their country. Is there more to this equation? Well, all of those points are correct, but let's just put it simply, they are refusing to take refugees for self-preservation. The Jordanian regime back in the 70s was nearly toppled by Palestinian uh, terrorists at that time under um, uh, Yasser Arafat, not under Hamas, but nearly toppled the regime. Tens of thousands of Palestinians were killed by the Jordanian regime, and they were pushed out into Lebanon. And then that destabilized Lebanon and was a big cause for their civil war. Meanwhile, in Egypt, uh, just as recently as 10 years ago, they had a Muslim Brotherhood regime take power. Hamas is also uh, sprung from the Muslim Brotherhood, so they are ideological cousins. Now, not only if the Palestinians were pushed into the Sinai, which is already sort of a wild west within Egypt that has al-Qaeda presence and other uh, uh, Islamist presence, uh, Hamas would have a new base there, and it would inspire Egypt's domestic Muslim Brotherhood organizations to perhaps rise up again and try to overthrow their current government. Just briefly here, what's the best move for Gazans now, given that even some of them support Hamas leadership? Do they have any alternatives? Unfortunately, they don't. There was the elections, the only elections that happened in 2005 in which Gaza, or rather uh, Hamas defeated the relatively moderate uh, Palestinian authority. Then in 2006, Hamas violently purged out the Palestinian Authority out of that territory. And now Hamas has a, a monopoly on the guns and on violence, which gives them absolute control. No, I would not want to be a Palestinian. And there is no real democratic or other uh, peaceful means to overthrow the Hamas government. Turning to the West Bank here, do you anticipate that this conflict is going to widen? We've already seen Israeli airstrikes on terror targets near a mosque there and causing Palestinians to have to move towards Jordan there, putting pressure on them to accept them? Well, all of these situations are bad, but let's say the West Bank is a little bit better because uh, Israel has maintained some security presence there. Now, the Palestinians there in uh, cities, towns, and other enclaves actually control their day-to-day -day governance, but Israel has a presence, for example, on the Jordan Valley and other strategic uh, uh, points. And because of that, in the West Bank, they haven't been able to import uh, missiles and other weapons from Iran and other regional actors. And so Israel has more of a handle on that situation. Therefore, I don't think it's going to break into total war in the way it is in Gaza. And I don't think there will be the same kind of refugee crisis. And again, Jordan has absolutely no interest for its own self-preservation to let any refugees in on that border. Well, it is great hearing your update. Adam Savitt, director of the China Policy Initiative at America First Policy Institute. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And keep in mind, Evelyn, that 70% of Palestinians are already refugees themselves. So they're wary about going into another country, having no roots there. Right. Well, the, that was definitely some insightful uh, content that he was able to provide. And also just, you know, the sobering rea reality of having a terrorist group ruling over these people. Yeah, and he was mentioning that they don't really even have a choice. Exactly. So. Stay with us here. It's been three weeks since former House Speaker McCarthy was ousted, but GOP members are still struggling to choose a replacement. They meet today to try and choose a candidate from the eight still remaining. And there's three things that are up. Addictions to sports betting and advertising for it. 
and tax revenue on it. A reporter tells us who the ads are targeting and what states are doing to combat addiction. Art-loving New Yorkers gathered at Lincoln Center to witness Shen Yun Symphony Orchestra's first show of the year. We asked audience members for their impressions. Check it out when we come back. to have you back. Michael Cohen is expected to be face to face today with his former boss, former President Donald Trump. Trump's former lawyer is set to testify as part of the New York Attorney General's civil fraud case against Trump. Multiple sources say this will be the first time the two have spoken in five years. Cohen went to jail for tax crimes and lying to Congress. He also previously testified before Congress about a hush money scheme involving women claiming to have had affairs with Trump. Republicans tried on Monday to find consensus on a new House Speaker. Eight candidates, including Congressman Byron Donalds, made their pitches to fellow Republicans at a two-and-a-half-hour closed-door forum. They also answered questions about how they would handle the job. My pitch is very simple. Uh, this is going to be a process where it's uh, member-driven, not speaker-driven. Uh, we need to get back to work, secure our border, fund our government responsibly, and hold this administration accountable. Byron's uh, a friend. He's someone that I've worked with closely um, since he's been in Congress. Obviously, I nominated him on the floor of the House in January. Uh, we've talked at length about what he would like to try to do to move the conference forward, and so uh, the room I swore behind Byron. I asked which of the candidates would support the prompt full release of the January 6 tapes to the public, and every single one of the candidates said they would do that. I didn't get in this to come in second or, or to lose, but I think it bring, I bring a different kind of background. I'm uh, spending 25 years uh, bringing organizations together. Republicans are due to meet again this morning to begin choosing their nominee behind closed doors. They will use a series of secret ballots. It is not clear whether any Republican can get the votes needed to claim the speakership. Congressman Dan Muser has withdrawn from the race. The congressman says each one of the candidates could be speaker. Six of the eight new candidates for speaker voted to overturn Trump's 2020 loss to President Biden. The two remaining candidates, Majority Whip Tom Emmer and Representative Austin Scott, did not vote to block the certification of the election results. Sports gambling addictions are going through the roof, and states are making tons of money off it after the Supreme Court legalized it back in 2018. To kick off the NBA regular season, I wanted to learn more about what's being done to protect gamblers and who's most at risk. So I spoke with a reporter covering this. Take a look. Please welcome Mark Gilman, reporter for the Epic Times. Thanks for your time today, Mark. No problem. Thanks for having me. What have you learned from your reporting on sports gambling? Uh, I have learned that it's a uh, monstrosity that's going to be pretty difficult to stop. Um, this year alone, uh, FanDuel and some of the others uh, involved, including DraftKings, are going to spend $2 billion on advertising alone. You cannot pick up a newspaper, look at a billboard, watch a TV show, um, peruse YouTube without finding an ad for one of these uh, gaming companies, including Caesars, which has also picked things up. So who are they targeting with this ad campaign? Well, I would, I would hope they'd be targeting people who are older, but unfortunately that's not the case. I think uh, the big problem has become in college campuses and uh, even 
kids under 21 who are using their parents' accounts to rack up just ridiculous amounts of uh, debt. Um, it's, it's just amazing to me that while some of them will say, well, we're not advertising on college campuses, they're, they're advertising college football games. I mean, even those that follow the NFL and play fantasy football – which is also probably something they're going to be looking at very soon. Um, we'll watch the uh, the Red Zone channel the, on the NFL Network, and the Red Zone channel is sponsored by DraftKings. So you can actually make bets while the game is playing, and that's really, really dangerous, especially for young people whose minds aren't developed to the point where they really know what they're doing and what they're sacrificing financially. Football is very popular for that group, and now that gambling is available on smartphones, it makes it so much easier. New York actually raised $909 million in taxes on this gross gambling and mobile sports gambling. So what can you tell us about this? Well, in New, in New York, um, New York has a 51% uh, tax fee on gambling revenue. Even at 51%, they made $909 million last year, which will tell you a lot about how much money that these programs are making in each individual state. The, the big issue is that Every state has its own state-run gambling abuse program. They're not getting funded. Uh, for instance, out of that $909 million that New York took in, less than 5% went to their uh, responsible gambling arm uh, with the state government. So it's once, once this money hits your tax revenue and you start putting it in your budget, it's going to be very difficult to live without it. Right. So I'm saying that this is much needed revenue that comes from taxing these types of gambling activities. And on the other hand, it runs the risk of people becoming addicted. So what are some solutions to this problem? Uh, I think more education. Uh, one of the people I interviewed made a really good point. You know, when kids come home from college, we ask them about um, how they ate, how much partying they were doing, making sure they weren't, um, you know, involved with too much alcohol, pot, whatever. No parent asked their kids about gambling. And that's that's a problem because it is a real, real issue. I was talking to my son. My son uh, just graduated from college in Michigan. And he, I had heard a rumor that some of these fraternities have bookies in addition to all this online stuff. And I asked him about it and he said, yeah, we have four bookies in my frat. It's, it's, it's a, they'll bet on anything. They'll bet on cricket. They'll bet on tennis. Um, table tennis, it, just the most bizarre things. You can bet on kickoffs. You can bet on who takes a timeout first. It's it's some it's incredible. But the the answer is education, and I think parents need to be educated, especially in regards to the kids. I mean, yes, definitely, some family discussion can go a long way here. Mark Gilman, reporter for the Epic Times. Thank you for your time. Thank you. It's great joining you. Art-loving New Yorkers gathered at Lincoln Center on Sunday. They were there to witness Shen Yun Symphony Orchestra's first show of the year. The performance ended with a standing ovation, and some audience members described it as a healing experience. Let's take a look. The return of the Shen Yun Symphony Orchestra was met with a cheerful and welcoming audience in New York City. It was their first stop to Lincoln Center in four years. It calms my soul, and we need that. It's beautiful. Very uplifting and uh, nourishing to the spirit. Orchestra is unbelievable. The composer, you could tell, is very talented. With the sound of a gong ringing through the hall, the orchestra kicked off the show with one of Shering's most acclaimed compositions, Salvation During End Times. 
The program included original music written by Shuri Performing Arts' in-house composers, as well as Western classical favorites like Dvorak's From the New World and Finlandia. The orchestra also performed a well-known classical Chinese music piece called The Butterfly Lovers. Shenyang Symphony Orchestra draws inspiration from 5,000 years of Chinese civilization, bringing stories and legends to life. The music emphasized Asian culture, and it has, I felt like the history, so much history of our own lives and of other people's lives were represented in the room. I, I, I saw movies. It sounded like a movie soundtrack. I could just see things going on when I heard the music. It just lights me up, it's so gorgeous. The New York-based orchestra combines both Western and Eastern instruments, blending ancient Chinese instruments and melodies into a classical symphony orchestra. Audience members call the performance uplifting. It's very good energy, it's very positive. Uh, it makes you feel good when you're listening to it, and it's uh, like in today's times, it's very nice to have such a positive experience. Understanding that beauty is part of our heart and the essence of every human being is very much a traditional value. And things that elevate the spirit, like this music, uh, awaken us to our conscience and being better people. Shenyi Performing Arts showcases classical Chinese dance, along with original music, aiming to revive traditional Chinese culture before communism. The company brings brand new performances every year. A new season of Shenyun begins in December. Sounded like quite the experience, huh? Yes, I just love listening to it. You know, I actually got the 2016 Shenyun Symphony Orchestra playlist on my phone. Oh. And there's one song I'd really recommend you check out. It's the Mystical Udambara. Those are the flowers that are said to bloom every 3,000 years. And get this, they have no chlorophyll, no roots. Wow, wow. I don't know what I just, what, what, what I heard was which one of those things was more impressive. But uh, yeah, but I have to say also, I, have, I, I do agree very much on the effects that music can have. It can either be really uplifting, and I, which I would echo what they say, which we really need at the moment, um, or also just depressing, depending on what you listen to, right? So. Yeah. yeah, it's really nice, and Shen Yun brings so much symbolism with its music, too. With lots of history. All right, uh, we are going to wrap up our show right here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information, so stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.